All right, welcome back, Christian Israel. Uh, I won't be able to do a, a, a continuing show on General Smuts. We did part one last week without the assistance of Pastor Martins because General Smuts was so active in South, you know, South African politics against the Boer people, a subject of which I have very little knowledge of. So I picked a, an alternative article for today. Unless Pastor Martin's calls in, we'll just have to do part two of the General Smuts story whenever he's able to return, you know, to uh, Voice of Christian Israel. In any case, the uh, article I have chosen, which is a related one, is uh, regarding the Balfour Project, because uh, General Smuts did mention the Balfour Declaration in his praise of Zionism. So we have a leader of the Boer people being an ardent Zionist, being an ardent promoter of the one world government <laughs> after and before and after World War One. Okay, so this guy was a traitor to the Boer people up and down. But of course, Pastor Martin tells us he is in fact a, uh, a Cape Dutch Afrikaner and not a Boer at all. So uh, can you call that, well, can you call an imposter a traitor, <laughs> right? An infiltrator, a subversive. That's what General Smuts was, an infiltrator and a subversive. So I tried to contact Pastor Martins uh, about five minutes ago, no response of any kind. So uh, his internet may be out because I know that South Africa has these rolling blackouts, which may be coming to a neighborhood near you at any time <laughs> with uh, uh, petrol shortages in Europe and some coming to America possibly as well. That uh, And, of course, fuel becoming more expensive thanks to Biden and the Federal Reserve Bank inflating the money supply out of sight and interest rates going up to 7% making the economy slow down, etc., etc. So they're trying. The great starvation has been put into effect. I, the only thing that keeps the, uh, the economy going, as far as the Rothschilds are concerned, is the fact that they have to make sure that their own businesses, Blackwater, British Petroleum, Shell, all the banks, they have to stay liquid. That is, they have to maintain these corporations, their pet corporations, have to stay in business in order to manage the great starvation and the great slowdown of the economy. Otherwise, if they do it too quickly, everything will collapse around them and they won't be able to micromanage it. They have to micromanage it. So that's where we're at right now. But, uh, you know, we'll see how this goes uh, because... With the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipelines, the European energy supply has been extremely curtailed. And the European, especially in Western Europe, are struggling to get enough energy. It's going to be a cold, cold winter in Europe. And if you're one of those people in America who has been put out of a job by COVID, your family, let's say your breadwinner has taken a jab and has died or is very ill, and the, the the meager dispensation of funds from the Biden administration to cover your losses is a drop in the bucket, right? So a lot of people have just decided to opt out of the economy and go off grid. And uh, you may have to do that as well. So, folks, this is a situation where we have to uh, make sure that we – are on top of things constantly to figure out what their next move is going to be. So right now, America has not been as badly affected as Europe. But I think uh, the real target of all this is Germany. They want Germany to knuckle under. They want NATO to take over both uh, Europe and Russia. Don't have to go into details there. It's really obvious that the the two states that left the European Union, or actually left left Ukraine, have been bombarded for the last eight years by NATO, and a tremendous loss of life, 
and infrastructure there. No reporting about this whatsoever in mainstream media. And so when Putin finally decided to retaliate and protect Russia from the the, the labs that they're using to instigate uh, germ warfare and, and chemical warfare, then they put those right on the border in Ukraine and other countries. Uh, Putin had enough. And so... But uh, he didn't, uh, but I think the whole war was still instigated by the Rothschilds because they need to have World War III and they need to have a boogeyman to blame it on. And so that's going to be Putin and that's been the trend ever since, ever since Putin invaded, uh, you know, now was this a, uh, another Pearl Harbor <laughs> type event where Roosevelt instigated the Japanese to the point where they had to invade because he had taken all of their petrol away. They had no natural, Japan had no natural resources as far as petroleum was concerned. And Roosevelt basically gave them an ultimatum. You either do business with us, we'll, we'll trickle fuel back to you if you play ball with us. But no, that, that offer wasn't even made. Roosevelt simply deprived the Japanese of energy resources. And they invaded Pearl Harbor. And he knew they were going to invade Pearl Harbor, but didn't alert all the soldiers at Pearl Harbor to be ready. No, this had to look like an unprovoked <laughs> unprovoked invasion, right? And so it looks like uh, Russia was, uh, was an unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. But I don't think so, folks. I think this is all staged. Whether Putin is in on it or whether he was dragged into it, is a question uh, I'll let other people answer for now. But so today, I put uh, into the chat room this article, Evangelicals, the Balfour Declaration, and Zionism. Because it is the Balfour uh, Declaration and the Zionist thrust beginning around the 1890s that have caused the world to fall into perpetual chaos, war, starvation, revolution ever since. Because we all know, as we were talking about this morning, on bloodlines with regard to the nameless war by Archibald Ramsey, the Jews are behind communism and international capitalism or and Zionism and banking. You know, they control the, the kit and caboodle. And so nothing happens without their planning it. So they have to be very careful uh, that their plans don't go awry and, and some fly in the ointment upsets the apple cart to mix metaphors. <laughs> Sorry about that. That, uh, you know, we're, we're in a, a stage where the Jews definitely want to destroy the white race, but they have to do it slowly. They have to do it slowly, number one, to avoid arousing suspicion from the uh, zombie masses, and number two, to avoid collapsing their empire. Because, you know, something, for example, that, that, that ship that got stuck in the, in the canal <laughs> a couple of years ago slowed things down way beyond anybody's, uh, you know, imagination, and the, uh, an accident like that could actually bring the whole a whole world economy crumbling down. And it's been a while since all those ships have got stuck in the ports, unable to deliver their goods, finally got rolling again. But even now, it's still slow. So uh, an event like that, unexpected event, maybe like a meteor shower or or a, an asteroid striking, <laughs> striking Tel Aviv, <laughs> You never know what can happen. The best laid plans of mice and Jews can go awry. So this is what we have to anticipate, folks. So anyway, all right. Oh, no sound? Okay. Oh. Okay. It's telling me uh, we're streaming. It's telling me we're streaming.
Okay. My computer is telling me we're streaming. So uh, let's see. Let me check another source here. Okay. Uh, Skype. Uh, excuse me, folks, if we're live and uh, I'm just checking other messages I may have gotten. So, okay. No, so it might be something on your end uh, uh, in Germany there, okay? Because normally when my uh, streamer tells me, gives me signal that that we're live and and on, that's generally very accurate, almost 100% accurate. (laughs) So let me uh, check it again. And it says stream time. 12 minutes, 10 seconds, and my voice is being picked up. And uh, let's see. Let me just check the audio. Uh, yeah, we're everything uh, on my end is okay. So uh, if anybody else in the chat room can uh, chime in, of course, if they can't hear me, <laughs> then, then uh, they're not privy to the fact I'm asking for input, right, or feedback, rather. So let me go back into, okay, uh, DCG2 says loud and clear, and Bram says, uh, and Seven says they got sound. So uh, Bavaria man, the problem is at your end, okay? The problem is there, okay, and Sussex man, thank you for all the feedback, very good. Sorry for the interruption, folks, but uh, these things happen. So, uh, but uh, obviously... Pastor Martin's in South Africa has got no sound either because <laughs> I was not able to get a hold of him. So for those who tuned in late, uh, that's the situation right now. So I'm going with this article about the Balfour Declaration. And, of course, we know that's one of the most important, one of the most important documents in history, the Balfour Declaration. It's never talked about in mainstream media. It's very rarely mentioned in any history books because the Balfour Declaration is the Jewish blueprint for taking over not just the world, not just Palestine, but the world. And the two world wars and the Bolshevik Revolution and all those other events, nonstop war in the 20th century, the Balfour Declaration is the, the main instrument by which all of these things have been accomplished. So the article is Evangelicals, the Balfour Declaration and Zionism by Roger Spooner. When talking about the Balfour Declaration with a pastor from Bethlehem, I guess he's talking about the Bethlehem in Palestine, he commented, quote, the problems for the Palestinians didn't start in 1917. They started in 1840. Well, they started actually uh, when the <laughs> when the rabbis, the uh, Pharisees, took over Palestine and murdered our Messiah. But that's another story. Literal reading of the Bible, which had developed in the 17th century, took off in the 19th, and Restorationism gained political power through Lord Shaftesbury. His political influence came through Lord Palmerston. Palmerston was Foreign Secretary 1830-50 and later the Prime Minister, and Palmerston was instrumental in fomenting the American Civil War as well. He was a total, total Zionist, if not a Jew. So we see all these Zionists, whether Jewish or not, taking their place in the British government during this time. And at the same time, however... The British Israel movement was taking hold in Britain. And I think that the Balfour Declaration was part and parcel to control the British Israel movement because it was getting out of hand. The Rothschilds had to take control of that and make sure that all those British Israelites worshipped the Jews instead of Jesus Christ. And that was part of the, the strategy as well, to turn all of those British Israelites and Judeo-Christians or, or Christians into Judeo-Christians and Christian Zionists as well, so that there would be no opposition to Zionism, period. 
That was all part of the plan. So anyway, getting back to Shaftesbury and Palmerston, Palmerston was Foreign Secretary from 1830 to 1850 and later Prime Minister under Queen Victoria. Shaftesbury's wife was probably Palmerston's daughter. He was certainly her stepfather. Shaftesbury placed an advert in the Times in 1840 proposing a return of the Jews to Palestine, sent a memorandum around to the Protestant monarchs of Europe, and moved to get a British consul and bishop, a former rabbi, <laughs> Michael Alexander, okay, now he's a bishop of some church or other, by, and uh, Michael Alexander, installed in Jerusalem. But Shaftesbury was not alone. He was just the politically best connected. Now remember, well, let me quote, make this quote here, the Scottish clergyman here. It was Scottish clergyman Reverend Alexander Keith, who was probably the first in 1843 to coin the phrase, quote, a land without a people for a people without a land. This was after he visited Palestine in 1839, so he should have known better. Yeah, I'm sure he was hired to make a statement like that. But isn't it interesting that the Bible says that the Shemites descended from Abraham and Sarah, Abraham and Hagar, Abraham and Keturah, would be, become, and especially even the Anglo-Saxons, uh, Isaac and Jacob, would be a multitude of nations and a company of nations and would spread across the world and have all kinds of nations Yet the Jews were without a nation in all this time. So, I mean, if you know your Bible, you know that the Jews cannot possibly be Israel, and Palestine is not their land. Let's continue. Shaftesbury was also one of the founders of the Palestine Exploration Fund, which in some people's minds was to find the archaeological support for the stories in the Bible. Well, yeah, it has been. But uh, the Jews have put the kibosh on any real archaeology and on any real study of the Bible ever since. At their first meeting in 1865, the chairman, the Archbishop of York, included in his speech, quote, This country of Palestine belongs to you and to me. It is essentially ours. It was given to the Father of Israel in the words, quote, Walk through the land the length in the length of it and the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. We mean to walk through Palestine in the length and in the breadth of it, because that land has been given to us, unquote. This gives the flavor of the thinking of that time. So, uh, well, who does he mean by us? <laughs> because we are those Israelites and the descendants of Abraham. This knowledge is not common in the Judeo-Christian, well, it was already Judeo-Christian in the mid-1800s. But uh, the, because you know, the, many Christians gave Jews credit for being Israel. But the evangelicals also appear to have played a significant role in the development of Jewish thinking. Quote, even the idea of the Jews returning to their ancient homeland seems to have originated among a specific group of evangelical English Protestants. Okay, no doubt these evangelical English Protestants were part of the the movement uh, much earlier during the uh, English Revolution fomented by the, what's his face, the, the invader, Cromwell, Cromwell, and the, the, the aftermath of Cromwell and pro-Zionist, pro-Jewish thinking among the, those Britishers. So it never ended. That, that type of thinking never ended. And uh, Christianity bottled along with all these adherents to the idea that the Jews are God's chosen people, and therefore they, need, they have a claim on Palestine. So you know, that's it, you know. And then uh, Calvinism 
Calvinism has never faded. So Calvinism and Cromwellianism have uh, remained in Britain ever since, and these are the two mainsprings of this pro-Zionist movement among English Christians. Okay, so here we have a quote from Anita Shapira. Anita Shapira, the variation of Shapiro, the respected Zionist historian, writes, oh yeah, who's she respected by? I never heard of her. Quote, until the 19th century, the Bible was considered secondary to Jewish oral law. Isn't that interesting? It was the Protestants who discovered the Bible. (laughs) Oh, I have tremendous respect for her making those two statements. Even the idea of the Jews returning to their quote-unquote ancient homeland as the first step to world redemption seems to have originated among a specific group of evangelical English Protestants that that is, yeah, Calvinists, that flourished in England in the 1840s. They passed this notion onto Jewish circles. Hey, there's one thing I have to stress. Don't give the Jews any ideas. Don't give them any ideas. Because the same, Napoleon did the same thing by inviting all the rabbis, uh, from all over the world to con, con uh, what's the word? Convene, convene a great Sanhedrin of rabbis, which he regretted having to do having done after it happened because it was a horrendous mistake. But he did find out what the Jews are really all about <laughs> once he had that great convention of the great Sanhedrin. So yeah, it was Napoleon, who he can't be considered a Christian, but he was a liberal and a universalist. And he's responsible for giving the Jews this idea. And then, yeah, these Calvinists, gave the Jews this idea too. So that's very interesting. Very interesting that uh, we have these two sources of information that tell us, well, it wasn't the Jews who thought up Zionism. It was other people who thought, who falsely believed the Jews are Israel. They're the ones who cooked it up. And the Jews picked up on us and said, hey, that's a great idea. Let's do it. Boy, have we been suffering ever since. So let me repeat this. This is fascinating information. Anita Shapira, the respected Zionist historian, writes, quote, Until the 19th century, the Bible was considered secondary to Jewish oral law, which is obviously the Talmud. It was the Protestants who discovered the Bible. Even the idea of the Jews returning to their ancient homeland, which it isn't, unless you're only talking about Pharisees who lived there for a time, as the first step to world redemption seems to have originated among a specific group of evangelical English Protestants that flourished in England in the 1840s. They passed this notion onto Jewish circles. Well, I think there's a little bit of feedback going on here too, because there's no doubt in my mind that the Rothschilds may have instigated some of this. Continuing, it might seem that the idea of returning to the land of Israel had been part of the Jewish people's spiritual beliefs from time immemorial. But there was an essential difference between this yearning and Zionism. Instead of passively waiting the coming of the Messiah, the Jewish people would take their fate into their own hands and transform their situation through their own action. Yeah, and this was, in fact, there's even uh, this strain of Zionists still around today, although they're in a tremendous minority. Like Netarai Karta, those Zionists who don't believe that the Jewish state is the fulfillment of their hopes and dreams, their prophecies, which are not biblical prophecies, and because they violate today the Jewish state violates the precept that the Messiah had to come and uh, and establish that. Their Messiah, that is, not Yahshua. So there's disagreement among Jews about this, but this makes uh, her statement ring very true. 
that uh, there's two groups within Judaism, and obviously we know who won out, the people with the money, the Rothschilds, and their current occupation of Palestine. All right? So, very interesting information here. And, of course, the average Christian is not familiar with any of this information. Theodore Herzl, who could be looked on as a founder of political Zionism, grew up in the environment of anti-Jewish pogroms post-1881, following the assassination of Tsar Alexander II. Yeah, well, okay, so there were pogroms. But why? Because Jewish assassins were assassinating Russian officials left and right, almost on a daily basis. As a journalist, he covered the Dreyfus Affair in Paris, where a Dreyfus, a Jewish captain in the French army, was wrongly convicted of spying for Germany. No, he was not wrongly convicted. <laughs> That's the Jewish line. Herzl returned to Vienna and wrote Der Judenstaat, the Jewish state. William Heckler, the restorationist chaplain of the English embassy in Vienna, saw Herzl's book in a bookshop and introduced himself to the author and offered to help him. Oh, no, you don't have to help Jews. No, 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 do not help Jews in any way, shape, or form. They do not need your help. They have a million times more bucks in their pocket and a million more schemes to concoct if you give them a good idea, a good idea for them anyway. So, so William Heckler the restorationist chaplain of the English embassy in Vienna. Oh, my goodness. Okay, yeah, so we have all these English preachers of the Calvinist strain falsely believing that the Jews are God's chosen people, fomenting Zionists, fomenting these ideas in the Jewish mind, which didn't even occur to them. Isn't that fascinating? Absolutely fascinating. So, Oh, wow. And so, Hackler had been the tutor to Prince Ludwig. Ludwig the crazy? <laughs> the crazy one? <laughs> the, the son and heir of Frederick I, the Grand Duke of Baden, and had developed very close links with the family. He had written a book on the restoration of the Jews to Palestine. You see? This is very interesting that the Jews hadn't even been thinking along these lines, but these self-brainwashed Judeo-Christians gave them the idea. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So his book was published in 1882. He offered to introduce Herzl to the German political leadership, such as the Grand Duke of Baden and the Kaiser. Who, had, who he had unsuccessfully attempted to meet before. But he also introduced him to the European leadership as well. Lewis writes, quote, In a remarkably short time, Herzl moved from being an obscure Jewish writer to the international stage. How did this happen? He got introductory notifications from William Heckler, who knew all these people. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Can you believe it? So that these Judeo-Christians gave the Jews the idea. Shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Should not have done that. Okay, so uh, DCG says, I've been exchanging my CI beliefs with some fellow Christian friends. They keep pushing me to read the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He appears to be a Judeo-Christian Jewish sympathizer during World War II and was murdered after the war. Okay, and do you have an information? And Sussex Man put something in here. Christianity Today, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Well, if we have time... We'll take a look at that as well, because this is not a very long article. So maybe we can get into that as well. So here we go. Uh, Lewis writes, yeah, so in a, an extremely short time, Mr. Herzl became very influential. Nahum Atik, 
The founder of Sabil, in a sermon in Bethlehem recently said, quote, In fact, Western Christian Zionists must share the responsibility for the creation of Zionism and in the establishment of the state of Israel. One of the closest friends of Theodore Herzl, the founder of political Zionism, was an Anglican priest by the name of William Heckler. Reverend Heckler was instrumental in inspiring and educating Herzl on those passages of the Bible that he believed call for the return of the Jews to Palestine in fulfillment of prophecy. This was critical to Herzl's campaign to attract observant Jews. Heckler was critical to the development of Zionism. Fascinating. Why have we never heard of him? I wonder whether the contracts facilitated by Heckler may have enabled, or contacts rather, not contracts, facilitated by Heckler may have enabled Herzl to get Lloyd George's law firm to act for him in 1903 on the Ugandan scheme. <laughs> okay, so, so Lloyd George, who was a totally compromised British politician, in the pocket of the Jews, totally. And so that's why they had the Uganda scheme, because they, the Jews were, really were never intending on going to Palestine in the first place. On the Uganda scream, scheme, where Britain raised the possibility of a Jewish homeland in Uganda. Now behind all this, as I have stated often, was the sincere desire of Britishers to get the Jews out of England. <laughs> yeah, go to Uganda already. Stop messing with our country. Go to Uganda, please. Lloyd George, at that point, was an unpaid backbencher, so needed work, but this meant he met the Zionists. So, uh, backbencher is not a term I'm familiar with. I assume it means somebody who just hangs around like a, uh, what do we call him here in America? Uh, not lobbyists. Lobbyists are, are actually more important than uh, our Congress critters. But pages, a page, a, a gopher, people who take messages to and from one politician to another or from one Jew to another, and don't get much pay, if any, but uh, this is a way to get your foot in the door. So maybe a Sussex man can enlighten me on that, because it sounds it's like a British, that's a British concept. I'm not familiar with uh, that expression here in America. So what's a backbencher? Uh, am I right in saying it's a gopher? You know, somebody who just volunteers to do things and that way get their foot in the door? So anyway, that's the term that's used here. So backbenchers, okay. So at that point, Herzl was not at first committed to locating the Jewish state in Palestine. He was quite happy to colonize places European powers were colonizing at the same time. Also, one wonders how Weitzman could obtain introductions to the British political leadership, such as Churchill in 1905 and Balfour in 1906, when he only arrived in the country in 1904. Well, I'm sure the Rothschilds would have something to do with that. Churchill was friendly with the Rothschild family. He and Balfour represented Manchester constituencies when Weitzman was appointed as a chemistry lecturer in Manchester University. Yeah, wasn't he responsible? Didn't he get the Nobel Peace Prize for inventing TNT? Right? <laughs> the more destruction you can create, the more you will get the Peace Prize, folks. Shapira comments that Zionism at this time represented, quote, a negligible percentage of world Jewry. Can you believe this, folks? Christians are responsible for Zionism. It is commonly claimed that the Balfour Declaration was issued because of wartime needs, such as getting America into the war. Although America joined the war six months before the Declaration, keeping Russia in the war against Germany was another. 
This aim evaporated almost immediately when Lenin took over Russia, five days after the declaration was signed and made a peace treaty with Germany. Once the war had been won, some of the claimed reasons were of little relevance. However, there was another component of the reasons for the declaration which did not get included in official documents. These were the beliefs of the people making the decisions. Jeffrey Alderman wrote in the Jewish Chronicle, quote, The Balfour Declaration was born out of religious sentiment. Arthur Balfour was a Christian mystic who believed that the Almighty had chosen him to be the instrument of the divine will, perhaps as a precursor to the second coming of the Messiah. Therefore, we must have a Jewish state in Palestine, right? I guess he didn't know they're really Edomites, not Israelites. Tom Segev wrote, quote, The declaration was the product of neither military nor diplomatic interest, but of prejudice, faith, and sleight of hand. The men who sired it were Christian and Zionist, and in many cases anti, well, he uses the word anti-Semitic here, anti-Jewish. Yeah, as I said, their aim was to get rid of the Jews. They thought they could outsmart the Jews and convince them to move to Palestine. No, no, no. You can't outsmart the Jews. You have to be totally Jew savvy to do that. And you have to have lots of money. And be be aware that if you try to outsmart the Jews and you succeed, they will assassinate you in a heartbeat. Let's continue. Rabbi Danny Rich. I am not arguing for Zionism as a Christian idea. But it is a very interesting point to make. Many of the non-Jews who supported Zionism did so out of their Christian understanding of what was happening, or a misunderstanding of what was happening, right? So, yeah, like I said at the beginning, okay, Sussex Man says, a backbencher is an MP who has not got a post in the government, Oh, okay, so they're just simply a, a member of parliament and votes on issues but does not have any other influence. Uh, when an MP who is an official such as Liz Truss resigns is said to return to the backbenchers. Okay, so in other words, you, you get to vote on issues but otherwise you have very little influence. Oh, correct. All right, so uh, that, that makes sense. Uh, a lobbyist, <laughs> right? <laughs> so if you're a an MP, a member of parliament, and you have very little influence, then just talk to the nearest Jew and ask that Jew what he or she or it would like you to do for them. And then you become prime minister. <laughs> That's how it works, folks. All right. Thank you for that explanation, Sussex man. All right, so let's continue with this article. This is fascinating stuff. And we all know that the Zionists, the Christian Zionists, were instrumental in creating the Zionist movement, at least among Christians. But this article is saying that the Jews never even got the idea if it weren't for these evangelicals. Fascinating. But this is a correct assessment of the thinking of Balfour, Lloyd George, and the political elite at the time. Balfour was brought up in an evangelical environment. Balfour's mother, Lady Blanche, was from one of the wealthiest families in Britain, being the sister of Lord Salisbury, who served three times as prime minister. She was an earnest evangelical, giving her son daily Bible study, but also distributing gospel tracts at the East Linton Railway Station near the Balfour Estate just outside Edinburgh. Now, was she doing this personally <laughs> as a multimillionaire? Well, okay, here, let me distribute some flyers at the, at the railway station. Or was she telling her service to go do that? Lloyd George, though, from a totally different social class from Balfour, was brought up in a Welsh Baptist evangelical environment. Speaking to the Jewish Historical Society in 1925, he said, I was brought up in a school where I was taught far more history of the Jews 
than about my own land. I could tell you all the kings of Israel, but of course he's mistaking the Jews for Israel. But I doubt if I could have named half a dozen kings of England (laughs) and not more of the kings of Wales. We were thoroughly imbued with the history of your race. He obviously was mistaken about that because the Jews are not Israelites in the days of its greatest glory. So this is what prompted these early and all Judeo-Christians to support Zionism. Active negotiations with the Zionists started once Lloyd George became prime minister. He already knew the Zionists as his law firm had acted for them in the 1903 when working on the Uganda option. The Zionists drafted what became the Balfour Declaration, and there were several drafts submitted to the cabinet. It was not until the autumn of 1917 that the second and third clauses protecting the rights of the existing population and Jews in other countries were added. So this, you know, this idea was fermenting in the background even before the Balfour Declaration was finally signed. So it's not that it just materialized in that year. Okay, so, so let's continue. It was finally agreed on the 31st of October, 1917, and signed on November 2nd. Curzon and Montague, the only two English in the cabinet, and Montague, the only Jew, so Montague was a Jew, were both against it. Fascinating. The majority of the cabinet were from the Celtic fringe and had been raised in evangelical homes. There were three Scottish members of whom Balfour was one. Calvinist forms of evangelical Protestantism dominated the family backgrounds of the majority of the cabinet members. There you go, folks. Calvinism. And if you haven't heard yet from us here at Eurofolk Radio, Calvin's real name was Cohen, and he was a Jew. It is very difficult to quantify the relative importance of Christian evangelical beliefs in the attitudes to the Zionist pressures. But it's very interesting. If uh, the the Zionist lady we quoted a couple of times, if she's being accurate, then the Jews never even thought this up. It was thought up by Christian evangelicals, uh, Calvinists. It was thought up by Calvinists. But it is certainly true that the majority of the political elite believed the Bible literally. As I mentioned earlier, Lloyd George's law firm acted for Herzl in 1903. Weitzman then arrived in Britain in 1904. He was, as well as a chemist, a highly effective propagandist, and he made it his business to make contacts with the British leadership. Here, let me give you some dynamite. Thus, when Lloyd George took over as prime minister and was favorable to a Jewish home in Palestine, Weizmann already knew the main players and was able to use the pressures of the war to press the Zionist case. Even though Zionists were negligibly minority of world Jewry at the time. Edwin Montague, the only Jew in the cabinet, the chief rabbi at the time, and many of the assimilated Jews in Britain were very much against the Zionist ideas. Britain continued its support for the Zionist project after the Declaration. In 1915, we had promised Sharif Hussein support for an Arab state, including Palestine. Yes, indeed. If he helped us against the Ottomans, he kept his side of the bargain. We reneged on ours. The promise was effectively swept under the carpet. And Lords of Arabia was extremely upset at this. Anyway, the Anglo-French Declaration in 1918 promised the countries released from Turkish rule would be able to choose their own governments. All but Palestine were allowed to do so. In 1919, at the request of President Wilson, the King Crane Commission was set up to find out what the inhabitants of the Middle East wanted. It was clear they did not want the Zionist project. Publication of this report was delayed until after the mandate had been agreed and, like McMahon's promise to Hussein, swept under the 
carpet. The important thing, folks, is that the Rothschilds wanted it. The Rothschilds always get what they want, no matter how many people they have to assassinate to get it. By 1919, Balfour commented that Palestine presented a unique situation. We are dealing not with the wishes of an existing community, but are consciously seeking to reconstitute a new community and definitely building for a numerical majority in the future. All right, talk about it. Talk about a deluded Christian prophesied by Paul in Second Thessalonians. Your delusions will destroy you. In 1921, at the time of the Arab delegation to London, Hubert Young prepared a memorandum on British policy in Palestine. One of his recommendations was, quote, the removal of all anti-Zionist civil officials, however highly placed. This was put into effect. In 1923, J.M.N. Jeffries wrote a series of articles in the Daily Mail. He finished the article of January 16th with, quote, whether Jew or Christian, a British official can only succeed in Palestine under the mandate if he is a sincere and convinced friend of Zionist aspirations, unquote. Also, in 1923, Ernest Richmond, who was a senior member of the Palestine Mandate staff, wrote, quote, the people begin to regard the government as Jewish, camouflaged as English. They were right. They will not accept Jewish rule. We deny them all the representative institutions which they enjoyed under the Turks. We allowed them no authoritative voice in their own affairs. Hence, we turned friendliness into distrust. It was only after three years working there that he found that the chief secretary, his immediate superior, Wyndham Deeds, was a committed believer in Zionism as the fulfillment of, quote-unquote, Old Testament prophecies, unquote. As was Captain Ord Wingate, who trained Jewish men in guerrilla techniques against the Arabs in the special night squads. And many of those British who furthered the Zionist cause were also assassinated by Jews. Amazing, folks. Amazing. So we have so many Christian Zionists in place in Britain at this time. It was, it was the, them, the Christian Zionists, trying to convince the Jews to move to Palestine. Christian Zionism was not just important at the time of the writing of the Balfour Declaration. They are a major political component in the U.S. support of Israel today. That is correct. See the Haaretz analysis by Allison Kaplan Summer. Armageddon, bring it on! The evangelical force behind Trump's Jerusalem speech. If he was hoping it would help elect Roy Moore in Alabama, it did not work. Or Afri Ilani describing Zionism as a, quote, global ideology espoused and funded by Christians. Well, not so much funded by Christians, but founded by Christians, as this article suggests. All right, so very much interesting backdrop to the Balfour Declaration that has never been made public before. Again, the author is Roger Spooner, and if I neglected to do so, I will copy this article and share it in the chat room. There it is, and since we have time left, I'll open the Bonhoeffer article put in by Sussex man Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Is he also a Christian Zionist? Or not? We'll find out. Quote, Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Okay, well, he doesn't sound like a Zionist from that quote. Quote, the time is fulfilled for the German people of Hitler. It is because of Hitler that Christ, God the Helper and Redeemer, has become effective among us. Hitler is the way of the Spirit and the will of God for the German people to enter the Church of Christ. Unquote. 
So spoke German pastor Hermann Gruner. Another pastor put it more succinctly, quote, Christ has come to us through Adolf Hitler, unquote. Well, I think the Jews were still, I mean, the Germans were still suffering under Jewish rule in the Weimar Republic and Jewish control of the economy. Hitler dissolved all that. So despondent had been the German people after the defeat of World War I and the subsequent economic depression that the charismatic Hitler appeared to be the nation's answer to prayer, at least to most Germans. One exception was theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was determined not only to refute this idea, but also to topple Hitler, even if it meant killing him. Oh, okay. From pacifist, uh, so there were more people who hated Hitler besides Jews. <laughs> From pacifist to co-conspirator, Bonhoeffer was not raised in a particularly radical environment. He was born into an aristocratic family. His mother was daughter of the preacher at the court of Kaiser Wilhelm II. And his father was prominent neurologist and professor of psychiatry at the University of Berlin. Well, I mean, anybody so positioned ought to understand how the Jews destroyed Germany by instituting the Weimar Republic. Maybe Bonhoeffer was not aware of that. We'll find out, maybe, in this article. Also a very brief article. All eight children were raised in a liberal, nominally religious environment and were encouraged to dabble in great literature and the fine arts. Bonhoeffer's skill at the piano, in fact, led some in his family to believe he was headed for a career in music. When at age 14, Dietrich announced he intended to become a minister and theologian, the family was not pleased. Oh no, not one of those Christian Zionists. Bonhoeffer graduated from the University of Berlin in 1927 at age 21 and then spent some months in Spain as an assistant pastor to a German congregation. Then it was back to Germany to write a dissertation which would grant him the right to a university appointment. He then spent a year in America at New York's Union Theological Seminary, a liberal hellhole if there ever was one, before returning to the post of lecturer at the University of Berlin. During these years, Hitler rose in power, becoming Chancellor of Germany in, Ch uh, uh, in January 1933 and President a year and a half later. Hitler's anti-Jewish rhetoric and actions intensified, as did his opposition, which included the likes of theologian Karl Barth, Pastor Martin Niemöller, and the young Bonhoeffer. Together with other pastors and theologians, they organized the Confessing Church, which announced publicly in its Barman Declaration, that's B-A-R-M-E-N, Barman, not Balfour, Barman Declaration, 1934, its allegiance first to Jesus Christ. Quote, We repudiate the false teaching that the church can and must recognize yet another other happenings and powers, personalities, and truths as divine revelation alongside this one word of God, unquote. Uh, that's actually the state, you know, the, the stated purpose of the Catholic Church as well throughout history, but that didn't stop them from dabbling in politics. In the meantime, Bonhoeffer had written The Cost of Discipleship, a call to more faithful and radical obedience to Christ and a severe rebuke of comfortable Christianity. Man, have we got comfortable Christianity today! Quote, and this is the, the quote we started out with, cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance, blah, blah, blah. I don't need to repeat that. During this time, Bonhoeffer was teaching pastors in an underground seminary, Finkenwald, the government had banned him from teaching openly. But after the seminary was discovered and closed, the confessing church became increasingly reluctant to speak out against Hitler, and moral opposition proved increasingly ineffective. So Bonhoeffer began, that's our, that's our situation vis-a-vis -vis Zionism, is it not? Speaking against them is increasingly ineffective and liable to put you in jail. So Bonhoeffer began to change his strategy. To this point, he had been a pacifist, and he had tried to oppose the Nazis through religious action and moral persuasion. 
Yeah, we're trying to oppose Zionism through religious activism and moral persuasion, but nothing's working. Now he signed up with the German Secret Service. Oh, infiltrate the government. Maybe that's what we should do to serve as a double agent while traveling to church conferences over Europe. He was supposed to be collecting information about the places he visited, but he was instead trying to help Jews escape Nazi oppression or supposed Nazi oppression. You know, don't forget the Jews you know, declared uh, war, economic war against Germany in 1933. Bonhoeffer also became a part of a plot to overthrow and later assassinate Hitler. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, here again, we have a lame-brained Christian not understanding the true Bible and the Christian identity perspective that the Jews are not Israelites at all, but are imposters, and everything they do is bad, not just for us, but for the world. Very interesting little uh, biography here about Bonhoeffer. We don't have time to, to finish it today. But here, that's a good suggestion. Let us infiltrate. Let us pretend to be good Zionists, infiltrate the government, and overthrow Zionism from within America. Right? Anybody interested? Oh, wait a minute. We're not to be liars and deceivers, are we? (laughs) But if you can use persuasion and the power of your office, whatever it might be, to persuade people, that would be a good thing. So anyway, here he becomes an infiltrator, a spy against Germany and against Adolf Hitler. So folks, yeah, very interesting. A lot of people have done that, become spies for the enemy. We're riddled with spies. They can afford to hire a jillion spies and infiltrate our churches and our government and our media. But we certainly don't have the resources to do that. And those in the media who dare to speak out lose their jobs or have accidents. That's the way it works, folks. All right, very interesting little biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, not, Not a good guy, as it turns out. Not a good guy. All right, thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. See you all next weekend. Have a Jew-free week. Amen.